who sent uh, your son and thank you that he is our cornerstone we praise you father that he will one day return and father we pray that in light of that this morning we would see your son very very clearly and by your spirit father we pray that we would give ourselves to him even more perhaps than we we do as we come here this morning (coughs) so father please help us please open the eyes of our hearts to your word help us to listen to you and we pray father that that would all be for your glory amen Uh, how dare you judge me How dare you judge me? How dare you tell me how to live my life? Uh, These were effectively the words of a man called Stephen Fry. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he hosts, or I think he used to host now, a, uh, a quiz show called QI. It's kind of a comedy quiz show. It's not one that I often, in fact, I've never really watched it. But not too long ago, I was shown a a short clip where during the show, Stephen Fry, the the host, starts to speak against Christianity, against the Christian faith. And I remember he kind of ranted for a while, and at the end of his rant, uh, he, he ended with these words, if you want to believe that stuff, that's fine. He said, but don't you dare tell me how to live my life. Don't you dare judge me. See, he's, he's effectively saying, look, Jesus has no authority over me. So don't tell me that he has. He has no right to judge me. Now, these comments resulted in this huge round of applause, which I guess indicates that Stephen Fry's thoughts are shared by at least some in this culture. And I guess many people that that we would know and meet are perhaps not as bold as to attack Jesus as the way he did, but they may have the same kind of attitude. You know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? You you leave me alone, leave me alone and things will be fine. That's great. If you believe that stuff, fine. But Jesus has no authority over me. Don't tell me that he does. I can live however I like, Don't you dare judge me. Now, if you were to dig into uh, uh, people's thoughts, they most likely believe in some kind of judgment. They will quickly tell you what is right and what is wrong, who should be punished and who should not. 
And of course they're more than happy with that as long as they are the ones to decide. As long as they are not the ones to be judged. And that's the kind of thought that we see this week in Mark's Gospel amongst a group of religious leaders. So if you were here last week, uh, what we saw in chapter 11 was that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as the king. And he goes into the temple and he judges the people with his actions, kind of going in there, turning over tables, and his words. What he announces to them is, look, you're here, you're in God's place, but you don't really have a relationship with God at all. And so what do they do? They approach him and look at what they say in verse 28 of chapter 11. Just look at that. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Now these people are not coming to Jesus genuinely wanting to find this out. You know, this is not kind of a, wow, this is amazing, tell us, who allowed you to do this? But what they're really saying is, how dare you do this? How dare you come and judge us? Who do you think you are? By what authority do you do this? And we know that this is their attitude because what we see this week in chapter 12, as John mentioned, is that Jesus tells them a parable. It's a story that tells, them, tells us a, a truth about God. And Jesus tells this story, as he does so, it becomes quite clear that they know what authority he has but they just don't like it and what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this parable we're going to see the authority of Christ and then we're going to consider what it means for these people here and for us by looking briefly at Uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13. So what we'll do is we'll start with uh, the parable. Okay, we'll start with the story. Uh, Here's here's how it goes. Jesus starts the story by telling the leaders uh, how a man plants a vineyard. Do you see that there in verse 1? He says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now, this would have been really normal at the time. Okay, so for a man to plant a vineyard and provide it with everything that it needs to function was totally normal. It's totally normal for, it to then, uh, for him to then let it out to some farmers for, for them to look after. But, of course, Jesus is not simply telling these people about some vineyard down the road. Okay, we know from verse 12 that it's a parable about them, against them. And so, you see, this man who's planted the vineyard, is a picture of God. And the Old Testament tells us that the vineyard that he has planted is his people. So God has brought his people into being, 
He's given them everything they need and he has given them to the religious leaders to look after. And you see, all that they have doesn't really belong to them. It has been given to them for a time. And it was given to them for a particular purpose. So God's people, from the time they were made and rescued, they were supposed to live for him. They're supposed to bear fruit. And so it's no surprise then, is it, that the owner of the vineyard (coughs) wants his fruit. He wants to see this people living for him. Because they belong to him. And so what he does is he sends somebody to collect it. Now, of course, you would think that they would present this to him, wouldn't you? That they, they, you know, the really healthy vineyard with people living for God would happily give to God what is rightly his when he comes to collect it. But their response then is really quite shocking. Have a look at verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, and some others they killed. Now, this is the story of the Old Testament. In his kindness, God sent to his people uh, one servant, one prophet after another that would approach the leaders and the people and say to them, turn back to God. Live for him. Bear fruit for him. And what we see is that time and time again, the servant is rejected. So Jeremiah uh, is just one example of a prophet who came to the people, telling them to bear fruit. And we read how they, they were so angry at his message that they had him beaten and thrown in prison. This is what they've done. But this owner, this God, is so patient, so loving, that he sends another servant. He has one last servant to send. See there, verse 6? He had one left to send. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. And this of course, isn't it, this is exactly where we find the people that Jesus is speaking to. God has sent his son and he arrives and you would expect there to be respect. 
Because if anybody has the authority to collect the fruit, it's him. Yeah, here is the son of the owner. God's own son (coughs) has arrived. God has sent him. And you would think that these people would see that and say, yeah, we need to live fruitful lives for God. But what we saw last week, of course, is that the son comes to Jerusalem and he finds no fruit at all. And more than that, they also reject him. Verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now as you read the rest of Mark's Gospel, that is exactly what happens. The son has arrived with authority and they crucify him. The really striking thing here is that is not a mistake. They are not thinking to themselves, Here's a guy who's out of place and looking to really run us down. So, you know, he's sticking his nose in where he shouldn't. They're not thinking, here's a guy who's gone mad and is making crazy claims, so let's get rid of him. No, they're confronted with Jesus and they can see exactly who he is. And that's precisely why they kill him. Did you notice that, verse 7? They say, this is the heir. This is the heir, we can see that. This is God's son. All we have is his. So let's kill him. And it will be ours. Do you see, in an attempt to gain everything... They get rid of the one who it rightly belongs to. Well, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, that's the, that's the natural question, isn't it? And, and actually, it's the question and the answer that we get in verse 9. Have a look down there. What will the owner of the vineyard do? (coughs) Well, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In other words, he will judge. These people here, they will not be part of God's people. They will not share in the inheritance They will not receive what they wanted. And it will be given to others beyond Israel. And they will be destroyed. Do you see, these people think that the rejection of Jesus Christ gains them everything. If we can just ignore this guy, if we can just get rid of him, then we'll really live. And yet it's that very rejection that results in them losing 
their lives. Now how can that possibly be the case? Because they've buried the heir, they, they've got rid of him, then surely they are left in charge, aren't they? Surely the inheritance is theirs. Well, here's the thing, despite their very best efforts, despite a real crucifixion and a real burial, they could not get rid of the son. Just read again from verse 9. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. As John helpfully pointed out to us earlier, didn't he, that, that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118. It's a psalm, just as we sung, about a man who faces his enemies, who is rejected to the point of death and yet doesn't face it. Instead, he's given life. And he stands in victory over his enemies and then provides salvation for God's people. A stone who was rejected has become the most important stone that there is the cornerstone. It's a stone of a building, you cannot do without it. Everything's built on it. And Jesus is saying here look, I am that stone, I am that man in that psalm. I am that king. Yes, the people will put him to death. And yet he is raised again. And as he is, Jesus becomes the cornerstone. So as he's raised, he is given all authority. Authority to judge those who reject him and the authority to trust those who save him. It all now orientates around him. And one day he will come back And he will destroy those who reject him. And he will save those who trust him. He's the cornerstone. It's all about him. And of course, this is where we find ourselves today. Jesus has that authority to judge and he will do so. Yeah, I guess Stephen Fry and his friends, they, they view Jesus, don't they, as this kind of, almost like this really weak kind of school teacher. Uh, one who kind of, you know, he claims to have authority. He's in a position, kind of, you know, he has his name of authority, but he, he really has no, no respect. And so as he walks out the classroom, the kids are going mad, and they just do whatever they please, no matter how insane it seems, because even though this teacher claims to be coming back into the room, they think, well, when he does, he's not going to do anything about it. And that is not the case with Jesus Christ. He has the authority to judge, and he will. And so, do you see, to try and bury him, to try and exert our authority over him, is just plain foolish. It's a bit like uh, the story of uh, uh, an aircraft carrier um, called uh, USS uh, Coral Sea and their interaction with an oncoming vessel. 
So this, this apparently, this is a true story. Uh, it's kind of denied by the US authorities. But either way, here's the conversation. There is the aircraft carrier, and it's, it's traveling through the sea. And it spots on its radar uh, something uh, kind of coming towards it. So it gets on the radio, and it says this. It says, please divert your course 0.5 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And the reply comes back, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And the aircraft character, carrier is, is slightly surprised. So it simply states who they are. And they ask again, this is the captain of, of the US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And the reply comes back, no. I say again, you divert your course. Now, by, by now, the captain of the ship is slightly outraged. Now, they're thinking, who does this guy think he is? Who could be bigger than us? We're an aircraft carrier. Who could be bigger than us? Who could not give way to us? So they come back loud and clear. They say, this is the aircraft carrier, USS Coral Sea. We are a large warship of the US Navy. Divert your course now. Reply, this is a lighthouse. Your call. Do you see, the point is, it doesn't matter how big or important we think we are. Those who do not submit to Christ, the most important stone, will one day collide with him. And they will be destroyed. And so, if you're not a Christian here today, can I please ask you to submit your life to that cornerstone, to Christ? Please know that in doing that, you don't lose your life, you gain it. You gain it. Now, if you've already done that, then what does it mean for us to, to, to submit to Christ? What, is, what does that look like? Well, I, I think there are two things that we read on, uh, that, we, that we read, um, that we see as we, as we read on through chapters 12 and 13. The first thing is this. We give ourselves to Christ. We give ourselves to Christ. So the rest of the chapter 12 features people who, who come and they meet Jesus. And after the parable he has just told, you're kind of left wondering whether we'll see any of them submit to him to bear fruit. And what you see is, ironically... The leaders who's just heard, who've just heard the story, they look for a way to kill him. Verse 12. Then, verse 13, 
they send some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words, that they may get rid of him. And moving on, we see verse 18, we see a group called the Sadducees. Now they say that there's no resurrection, and then they're asking Jesus, well, well, tell us what happens at the resurrection. Uh, Jesus, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're like the, 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 the same groups as before, but it's just a different episode of QI. They're, they're not actively raging against him, they're mocking him. And then you get this teacher of the law who agrees with Jesus that what he needs to be doing is loving God with all his heart and his soul and his uh, mind and his strength. And Jesus applauds this only to then announce in verse 38 that it's all for show. Yeah, the teachers of the law, they know the right answer. This guy talks well, but he doesn't actually give himself to Jesus. And in contrast, right at the end of chapter 12, we meet a widow. Just have a look at her. Uh, Just uh, turn over chapter 12, verse 41. And see this widow. Here's what happens. Jesus, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Now look, I don't think, Jesus is not saying this, he doesn't call over his disciples and tell them this, they may give all of their money. I don't think that's the point. The point is that here is a woman who gives genuinely. See, all the others at the temple, they're just there to tick a box. Here's a lady who really seeks to love God with all of her heart and all of her mind and her strength. Everything she has. And I guess that that is what it means for us to submit to this cornerstone. If everything is from him, then nothing's really ours. And if everything is for him, if he will judge us, then to submit means to give all of our lives to him. Richard and I were... um, went along to a, uh, a day conference run by uh, the East Anglian Gospel Partnership, of which this church is part, uh, during the week just gone. And one of the speakers was talking about a man in his church who was going about a relationship in a way that Jesus clearly spoke against. And this guy, he kept saying to the pastor, look, it's okay You know, I I have great faith. I have a great relationship with Christ. I have great faith. 
I'll be okay. It's okay for me to, for, to do this in this part of my life because I have a really strong faith. And eventually this pastor turned around and said to him, no, you don't. Because you're not giving this part of your life to him. You're not trusting him. You don't submit to him with everything. And that's what we need to seek to do, isn't it? To literally give ourselves to Christ. I guess the encouragement is for us, do you, do you not see, you don't, lose, you don't lose your life, you gain it. You do not lose your life as you do that, you gain it. And the second thing we see this morning is that we simply need then to keep doing that until the end. We need to keep watch. That's the last thing we see this morning, we need to keep watch. So Jesus says in the parable, doesn't he, that, that, look, the owner will come back, and I, I think what he means is Jesus then will come, Jesus is the cornerstone, will come back. And for the whole of chapter 13, we see Jesus <coughs> teaching his disciples about that, about that coming judgment, both on the physical temple in Jerusalem and the judgment to come when he returns. And here is what he says in light of that. Have a look at chapter 13 and verse 32. Verse 32 of chapter 13. But about that hour or about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know when the, when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. In other words, if you've submitted yourself to Christ, keep trusting him. And what he's saying here is you do that by keeping an eye on his return. You don't know when that will be, so just keep watching. Think to yourself regularly. Think to yourself every day, what would Jesus find? What would he think if he came back today? And if you really believe that he comes back to judge, what that will do is cause you to turn to him again, to submit to him again, 
and to do that every single day until he comes back and you stand with him in glory rejoicing in his victory as the cornerstone let's pray Father, we recognise that you have given your Son all authority in heaven and on earth. We recognise that he has the authority to judge, to save and destroy. And so we pray, Father, that we would submit ourselves to him and trust him until he comes back. In Jesus' name, Amen. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to have just a time for um, any comments or questions or anything else you want to add to what's been said. Um, and um, <coughs> just to help us with that, we, we usually have a, a just a couple of minutes where you can discuss what we've said, uh, what we've seen. Um, so let's have a couple of minutes and there'll be time for some, for some feedback.
Okay. Um, sorry to uh, sorry to sort of interrupt your discussions, um, but um, why not make this a, a wider discussion and say if you have anything that you want to share from your discussions um, or you want to ask anything, then please feel free to do so. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Uh, a couple. Richard, and then we'll go to John. Yeah, thank, thank you, Ben, for that. Um, there seems to be an irony in this passage mm. that Jesus tells them a parable about the sun being rejected and the stone being rejected, God is going to exalt. But as soon as he's told them this, yeah. they then set about to kill him to yeah. fulfill the very prophecy that he's just told yeah. them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it just seems so ironic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 That's right. And I, I, think, I think one of the things that that tells us, Richard, is that... We ought not to be surprised. When, so when you go to work on Monday morning or you do the school run on Monday morning or you go to the shops, whatever it is, and somebody says to you, what did you do at the weekend? And you say, I heard a sermon about Jesus coming back and do you know he will judge you? Now, look, you might not say that there and then. But anyway, what, if, you, if you get round to having that conversation with somebody and saying, look, you need, you need Jesus Christ, you need to submit to him, we ought not to be surprised when actually they just walk away and they carry on just not seeing their need of him. You know? That, that, that's like, isn't that striking here in verse 12? They, they, they know he's spoken a parable against them and they go out to kill him. Yeah, and, and that's just, like, we should not be surprised. Obviously, you cannot kill Jesus Christ now, but you, you can ignore him. You can get rid of him in your own heart and mind. And we ought not to be surprised by that. That's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Richard. Uh, go on, John. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, we were saying, or, or Peter was saying, that um, uh, we can also look and watch expectantly as well. So, so not just um, fearing God rightly and kind of submitting to him, but also expectantly, like, wow, he's coming back. This is amazing, good news for us if we are Christians. Yeah. Um, and Peter was saying that we gain because we gain Christ. And since we are joined to Christ... We therefore gain everything when he comes back. Yeah. And that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Or we should be more excited by yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Tao and Nick. Go on, Tao, after you. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, this rejection of Jesus um, as a reality. Jesus has said, but I, I don't know how, how kind of, how do I put that into my trust uh, or my prayers for my children to believe in Jesus, mm. to say that, yeah, on the one hand, God is really good, God loves them more than I do, mm. he will save them, but on the other hand, there's a chance they will reject him, mm. and there's nothing I can do about it. Mm. Yeah. So is your question, how do you then pray for them? How do I cope with it, I guess? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what my, yeah. what my question is, but... Yeah. 
No, I, well, I think that's very helpful. I, I think I, I'd, um, I'd say a couple of things, Tal. One is um, that, again, I, we, we, sadly, we, we ought not to be surprised um, because, and I say that because, what, what, one of the, the most horrific verses, I think, in the whole of Mark's Gospel is verse 7 that you see here. And that is to say that they can see who Jesus is and they kill him. And I have no doubt that our children are in the privileged position where they have been told and they've been confronted with who Jesus is. So, you know, my kids around the breakfast table regularly sing, Jesus is the King, ruler over everything. Um, we sing that all the time, we love it. Um, and they, and Samuel obviously does as well. He, uh, <laughs> what's that? Um, but, um, you know, they know that. And yet, even though they know that, even though they know they need to submit their lives to him, they may willingly reject him. And so I guess the thing to pray for them is not only that they'd see him, but they'd see him in such a way that they, they willingly submit and the Spirit causes them to submit their lives. And I guess the thing is that God can do that. You know, God, God can do that and loves to do that. So keep praying that for um, our children. Um, I think the other thing um, that I would say, Tao, is that I, I, I think one of, so one of my one of my biggest dangers, one of my uh, my 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 biggest idols is the salvation of my kids. So that is something that I long for, and that I I often think, if this does not happen, my my world is going to end. You know, um, but do you see? You can so easily make that your saviour. So my saviour becomes my kids trusting in Jesus. That's what I want more than I want Jesus myself. And so one of the things to do, I think, or one of the things that I certainly need to do, is be so in awe of the authority of Jesus that actually my biggest concern is me submitting to him, me giving my whole life to him. And what will then happen is my children will see what that's like. They will see somebody who who commits their whole life to Christ. And it... Do, do, do you see? It's like I, I can worry about that. So I, I, I know I, I, I empathise completely with your question because I worry about that. I think I want my kids to be saved, and yet actually my biggest worry is that Jesus is re- returning, and so I need to I need to submit to Him. I need to trust in Him. Uh, did, does that does that make any sense? And that should be our biggest priority. Um, yeah. Uh, go on. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, no, no, it was just to explain. Um, what does someone like Stephen Fry think happens at the end? What? Yeah. At the end of his life. I don't know. Um, so you may have you ever seen that interview where he talks about um, somebody asks him. 
about God. He's basically he's basically saying God is a monster. And base and, and this guy says to him, um, "Are you get, do you think you're going to get in to heaven on that basis?" And he says, "I don't want to get in. I don't, I don't want to be with God." Um, and I guess you know on that basis he he. I guess he just thinks that actually, uh, again, that, that, that this is not, um, you know, judgment is something that simply won't affect him, that he, he, st- he will still be better off without Jesus. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? In Re- when you read in Revelation about the return of Jesus, what you see is not people repenting, but people gnashing their teeth. And, and so even though they're going through agony, um, they still don't want him. And, yeah, I, I, I guess that's what he believes. You know, he, it's interesting that he, 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 he thinks that God is a reality, he just doesn't think that he's good or that he needs him. Um, and it, I guess in our culture, that's something that we need to awaken people to. You know, you think, you can see, if you look around you, that, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Do people know that God is real and God keeps knocking on their door with things like death, you know. Um, there's got to be something beyond this life. People are kind of aware of that, and yet they just don't see their need of Christ. And that's what we've got to try and help them to see. Um, yeah. Go on, Richard. Um, just a comment about Stephen Fry. You said that he doesn't want to be in heaven with God um, God will give him what he wants and hell will be filled with people of whom God has given them what they want they don't want God they won't get God and hell is awful because where there is no God there is no goodness there is no blessing it's awful Stephen Fry will get his request. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you, Richard. Uh, anything else at all? Peter? Let's go, let's go the last one, shall we? Um, <clears throat> two things. A lot of the people who um, um, appear to sort of push uh, God away, um, it's the sort of thing, you know... Um, we just want to cover up something that's just not um, convenient for us. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and also that exhibits a, a huge arrogance, um, which comes out very often the way d- they deal with other people, mm. uh, other people who are maybe less than them. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's something I've, I've noticed, and it, it really is very almost shameful the way they treat folk. Um, um, the other thing is um, about prayer. I don't know if people remember um, the story about Monica. Monica was the mother of St. Augustine and she went to her minister who was the uh, bishop of, um, where was it, Milan and uh, told him the story. My, my son is going astray. He's, he's wandered away into all sorts of wickedness and uh, he then said to her my dear Monica it is not possible for the child of these tears to be lost. Now, 
you know, okay, we could maybe find experiences where that, that doesn't work out. But it is an encouragement that bringing our tears before the Lord for the people that are dear to us, you know, he does hear. Yeah. And that um, it may be that we can claim, well, it's not possible for the child of these tears to be, to be lost. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, well, thanks very much. Keep talking. Uh, uh, great to talk t- with one another following uh, our last song. And uh, what we're going to sing is, uh, we're going to sing of how actually salvation revolves not around us, but it revolves around Christ. And so it's in him alone that we must uh, turn. And for us here who know that, to rejoice in that and to keep trusting him. So let's stand and sing in Christ alone.
great. Uh, really, really, sorry, do take a seat. Lovely to be with you uh, this morning. Lovely to be together. And uh, let's uh, keep talking together over a cup of coffee uh, or tea or something else. Just a couple of things to mention to you. First is, if you're visiting and you'd like to know more, please do fill in one of these and uh, pop it in the box on your way out and somebody will be in touch with you uh, tomorrow. Uh, The other thing is that this afternoon at um, uh, 3 o'clock, the church are going on a walk. We're meeting at Great Camborne uh, Tennis Courts. Now, if this kind of rain persists and it's just... um, you know, soaking wet. We probably we won't walk. We'll just go to Rich and Sandra's, which is eight Playcross Close, for some cake and some coffee. So you don't have to earn that. You just uh, you don't have to earn that with a walk. You just go around there and eat, and uh, that'd be great. Either way, we'll be there at, from four o'clock. The walk is weather dependent. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, great. Okay. Um, go on, Sandra. Yeah, if, if it's actually raining at the time, uh, then just, just go straight to Richard and Sanders at four. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 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 Um, very last thing it, it is that on the 14th of July, the church here would love to go away together uh, for a weekend. Um, now, if you receive the um, emails, there's a link to a form which we're asking you to fill in to say whether you can come or not. And just to say, this is the last week you can do that. So I need to get in touch with the hall and say, we can come or we can't come, depending on numbers. So please fill that form in if you haven't done so already. If you don't, don't receive the emails, let me know. I'll make sure you, you get the email or the form or, or something to say whether you can come or not. Um, Let me pray. Let's pray together. Uh, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.